Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, coming at you from beautiful sunny California. This is Dr. Santosh, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And this is Praz the Sandman, fighting off a bout of bronchitis over the radio waves. That wasn't Aww. actually a joke, I actually had bronchitis. Oh no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this week, I, I know, I feel like we're constantly just really manufacturing new reasons and <coughs> topics to talk about. Stop with these segues. Yeah, you you stop manufacturing. You'll never get me to stop because that's right. If you did bury the lead and read the title, you'll see that once again, it's time for our bi-monthly episode, everybody's favorite, Journal Club. Yay! I hope you all do the Kermit arms along with me when I... <laughs> so this week, all our stories are going to be focused, by and large, on things that we have manufactured, created, or industried into existence to treat medical conditions. Some of these are like, you know, it's they're necessary and they're good. And there's a few of these, it was like, wh- why did someone do this? So let's start off with a why did somebody do this? There was an article on the BBC uh, that came out earlier last month that there has been a soft drink banned in Zambia. A while back, we went on an African safari, and I promise you, had I known this soda existed, I would have bought it just for the novelty. <laughs> but <laughs> and then, and then, well, you would have had to yes. see your doctor. <laughs> Power yeah. Natural High Energy Drink SX oh, is God. made in Zambia. <laughs> that even has all the right names in it. 
But an investigation by Ugandan health authorities found that the uh, soda contained, well, let's just say more than trace amounts of sildenafil citrate or Viagra. That's right. They put Viagra into their soda, so uh, not a soft drink. I imagine over there they don't have, like, obligated (laughs) to list the ingredients in their sodas. They can just put whatever they want, and the public is none the wiser. Oh, no. The packaging on the drink clearly states it increases libido and claims to revitalize body and mind. Okay. Well, in that case. Well, I mean, you'll get blood flow to somewhere. No, there's not an FDA equivalent in Zambia. And now, of course, since the drink has been banned, it has increased in price and is no longer (laughs) sold openly in supermarkets and other public places. But essentially, some (laughs) poor Ugandan bought a, you know, bottle of soda and then walked around and the rest of his day was very hard. Literally. (laughs) Truth be, this could actually be quite dangerous, especially if patients happen to be on a class of drugs called nitrates. Uh, this could lower their blood pressure. You have uh, heart issues. You've got lung issues. And yeah, if you sustain a direction too long and you get priapism, you could lose your penis from ischemia. And you thought only your teeth would rot out of your head if you drank too much soda. <laughs> Isn't that, that's a great, like, new boogeyman. Don't drink so much soda, or your dick will fall off. <laughs> so if any of our listeners are wandering around Zambia or Uganda and you see a bottle, just, you know, feel free to send it over. I'm curious. I'm curious. <laughs> we can do a Pepsi challenge. Oh, God, we're going to get thrown in jail. <laughs> what? No, I'm saying if you happen to find a bottle... Send it for medical testing. Yes, that's what it is. <laughs> sure, yeah. Just stick a biohazard label on there and it'll it'll be for like chemical testing. So sure. we will keep this episode on the lighthearted where we can, but let's start with the first story, which has been making all the social media rounds this week for what will probably be the wrong reasons. So <laughs> I know usually I'm the first one to jump on these stories, but yeah. Santosh, Praz, you two are, are probably a lot more experts in the various fields. So I'm just going to open with the title that we have managed to reanimate pig brains. And why is that going to make a lot of people happy and me terribly well, sick? So as you all know, listeners, I am an anesthesiologist, but um, what I, you may or not know or I may not have mentioned is that I also was trained to do intensive care, ICU medicine. In the intensive care units, we see patients who have severe brain damage and in many cases, brain death. And pretty much any ICU you go into, you see people who have very poor long-term outcomes and very poor um, qualities of life. I look at this article. Um, there were some pigs that were taken from a slaughterhouse. Decapitated and they weren't receiving any blood for at least Four hours. But then maybe 46 hours after that, by the time they got to the lab, the um, both started injecting artificial blood and artificial tubing uh, through these patients, to these pigs' blood vessels and delivering nutrients, including sugar and also delivering oxygen. And what they found was that some of the cells were now starting to show signs of performing basic cell level function. Uh, They're not quite dead. 
<laughs> no, 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 no. This is really important. Yes, yes. They're so, dead. It's very, very uh, important to distinguish. The study specifically says cellular activity was literally just seen at the cellular level. These pigs did not have any like organized activity. Um, they did not. Such as consciousness, sensory perception, pain, distress, anything higher order. All they did is they managed to make a few more blips with, you know, souped up turbocharged blood and a new device delivery method that could restart neurons, individual cells long Look, after we shouldn't I'll, have been able to. I'll go even one step further. Um, Praz, they, they actually tried to check by electroencephalogram, right? They even, they even tried to see if there was like some baseline brainwaves going on, even like some teeny so. tiny amount of electrical. Yes, activity. I think that's what they, I think that's yeah. what they're And I think that was, yeah. even that was like zero. Absolutely. The, the source paper here in, in nature is absolutely beautiful. It has some of the most gorgeous images from uh, MRI, ultrasound, the pathology. Um, and then actually when they made slices of the brain um, and inspected uh, the cytoarchitecture to show that when they were perfusing the brain, individual cells were staying alive, staying alive. And they, sorry, you just basically prevented those cells from dying any further. And there was some metabolic activity going and on. And I there. love yes. how you phrase that, Santosh, where they said, you know, neither brain cells grown in culture or slices of postmortem brain tissue traditionally have told us a lot about what goes on in the brain. So that's right. what this study allows us to see in an untouched brain. Um, you know, what's going on. So it's almost as if you're trying to learn about how a pig functions by looking at a slice of salami. Not really terribly helpful, but if you can actually take a whole section of the pig, which they did, and get little bits and pieces of here to fire, well, then you have a cellularly active brain, but not a living so, one. Right. So... You know, you like you go into autopsy or something like that, or uh, for research purposes, you want to see how brain cells function. But, you know, you get your tissue that's been sitting there for a long time. In this case, you know, you could actually keep those cells alive for a while, you know, to investigate them properly. So, all right, let's, let's look at the big picture here. Um, why is this so concerning to a lot of people in the scientific world, particularly people who deal with? patients with these type of brain injuries and brain death. First of all, I should start by saying there's two basic medically legally recognized forms of death. Um, and those are cardiac death and those are brain and brain death. So cardiac death is very straightforward. And it's the one that pretty much everyone recognizes literally when the heart stops beating and has failed resuscitation. I think most pretty much anyone would agree that that patient is unequivocally dead. Brain death, on the other hand, is more controversial and less well understood. Uh, true brain death it probably also happens less commonly than cardiac death, which is probably why people also don't get it quite as much. 
But um, brain death is essentially a complete loss of brain function in the presence of a body that could otherwise be very healthy, a physically beating heart, like good lungs, everything else. But the brain can't function. There's no consciousness, no perception of anything. And it's generally, well, it is considered to be an irreversible state. Once you're brain dead, there is no improvement. There is no going back to being the person who you once were. Um, and this has been proven repeatedly. The concern here is that now we have a study saying that, hey, this person's brain hasn't gotten blood for four, seven, four six hours. Now we're starting to see cellular activity. Maybe brain death can be reversed. Maybe we can bring these people back. But as this study clearly shows, and something that I feel a lot of people will ignore, these, even though there was cellular activity, these pigs did not come back to life. They were not aware of anything. They were not doing anything. They, it certainly did not reverse uh, the process of brain death. And yes, we read the whole study, and the Brain X company fluid included a chemical that suppresses neuronal activity. So, of course, people are going to say, well, without that, maybe the pig brains would have shown consciousness, which makes you ask, what would be the moral status of a once dead but partly restored brain? You know, we're not quite at the Futurama heads in jars stage of, no. <laughs> of development, but it could make the debate over both brain death and organ donation a lot trickier because this was not a cryogenics. These, I am deeply worried that too many people are going to read the wrong message out of this and keep people in persistent vegetative states or brain dead states. So this is, this particular investigation was really to keep cellular activity of a brain, you know, marginally around and, uh, you know, it, it's really, really showing that if I need to investigate, you know, brain cellular function, but I have to transport the brain for a period of time, you could maybe hook it up to this brain X system so that I don't get, uh, you know, like an underperfused deteriorating brain by the time that I get it, nor do I have to stick it in a preservative like formaldehyde. That's really what the thrust of this was for, was for like further research, of keeping a brain around well enough for research. This, neither the goal of this experiment nor the outcome of this experiment shows that you can even kind of sort of revive the brain. The, I think Josh, you're right. And Praz, you're right. The scariest thing, even these like kind of clickbaity titles, which lead to the source article, these are reputable news sources. So like shame on you, science media. It was a cool research article and it shouldn't be blown out. Of right. For that, we'll have to go back to Sergio Canavero with his head transplants. <laughs> See, that's something we can all agree on. Who doesn't want to move heads around? But resuscitating brains after they've been proven dead, mm -mm -mm -mm. not yeah. on board with it. It's when I create a journal club. a whole hour like, just talking about this article <laughs> alone and just how 
um, misleading this is and what a bad idea it is, quite honestly. Well, yeah. bad idea in the social sphere. In the research sphere, there's a lot of great things that could be done. It's Correct. just I don't trust us to do them right now. I do want to bring up while you were bringing up uh, Cotton Canavero and uh, the head transplants, mm-hmm. the 33-year-old man who was suffering from the debilitating disease who was going to have the head transplant, his name is Valerie Spiridonov. Uh, he has warning Hoffman syndrome. He actually backed out of the head transplant because he oh. found love yeah. and he became a dad. Good for him. Sounds yeah. like he's got a good head <laughs> on his shoulders and wants to keep it there. This was just like April 10th, 2019. This was a week ago. This came out. <laughs> People magazine broke the story. <laughs> well, good. It's always nice to see a happy ending. And that brings us to our next study, which as happy as it makes me, is going to make Santosh just as frustrated. Oh, uh, uh, which... Uh, wait, wait, God, wait. Let God, me start. <laughs> Scientists at Harvard have uncovered the DNA switch that controls genes for whole body regeneration. That's right, folks. We're that much closer to being able to regrow limbs. Worms, worms, jellyfish, sea anemones can, you know, regenerate their entire bodies after being cut in half. Lizards can regrow tails. Why are humans, you know, stuck on the tail end of this chain? Where I get a paper cut some, and it takes forever. Some lizards can grow like, shit tails, like actual, like, shit which are not at all about. like their original oh. tails. Oh, when was the no, last time like, you regrew anything, like, huh? Basically, by yeah. studying a number of these regenerating creatures, planarian worms, or little flat nematodes that we all had to use in early level science classes. Which these scientists still use in their very advanced science. I'm not putting them down for using planarian worms. I'm simply saying a lot of us would have had exposure to these. Now, by <laughs> discovering those worms, they were looking at the DNA that allowed them to regenerate. And interestingly, it was a section of non-coding or what we often refer to as junk DNA that contained a master control gene that's known as early growth response or EGR. And that is the power switch for turning regeneration on or off. By tweaking the activity of the gene, they found out that if you don't have it, you don't regenerate. If you do have it, you do regenerate, but all of that is in the junk DNA. And here is where it gets interesting because the studies were done in three banded panther worms and planarians, and they found that during, yeah, black panther worm. (laughs) Panther worms! (laughs) How did you gloss over panther worms? (laughs) It's like tiny. (laughs) That's like one of the coolest animals from like Avatar, the last airbender. (laughs) So scientists found that when these worms are regenerating, the tightly packed DNA in their cells unfolds and allows these junk areas to be transcribed and give instructions to the parts of DNA that actually make proteins. But humans also carry this gene and we produce it when our cells are stressed and in need of repair. But it doesn't trigger large-scale regeneration. So you can create enough new skin and vessels and blood to form scar tissue or to have open healing from a surgical wound or surgical repair, but not enough to grow a whole new arm or tail 
or head. <laughs> and they think that it's probably because the master gene is wired a little bit differently in humans. And so, of course, we're trying to find a way to tweak its circuitry so we can regenerate. <laughs> and this paper did none of that. <laughs> the paper looked at EGR and non-coding sections yeah. of DNA. I'm just extrapolating out to the yeah. exciting conclusion. Stop it. Just stop. This was an awesome panther worm paper. And the identification of these gene elements in human beings is pretty damn cool, I got to say. But uh, the the actual experiment, which is a bit barbaric um where they actually like cut a worm is it barbaric (laughs) if you know they're gonna regrow fully i i genuinely don't know the neural structure of a panther worm the number of things that i've had to do to little unicellular parasites all the way up santosh that is a horrible way to refer to your profession of pediatrics stop it (laughs) oh no no that's that's embryology, um, and that's actually where we and see a lot of EGR really active in humans. By and large, we don't use it in our day to day goings on, but in embryology, it is used to help trigger the formation and initial growth of limbs. But that's hardly regeneration, yeah. as you don't even have an arm yet. So you know, you just. I don't know. Feels like a little bit of a letdown. It is an exciting study because for years and years, one of my biggest pet peeves is anytime Hollywood is like, we only use 10% of our brain. I'm like, the only person using 10% of their brain is whoever wrote that stupid factoid because it's false. (laughs) Now, uh, in terms of coding DNA, we do only use 2% of our genome. The rest of it is you know, this non-coding stuff that we don't quite understand. We'll link to this paper. If you guys can see it, it may be behind a paywall, Um, but it is so, so cool how they, you know, cleanly identified this, this particular little gene, this master regulator EGR, uh, and then actually did gene networking to, you know, find homologs of this, you know, in Drosophila melanogaster, you know, your fruit fly, and in Homo sapiens, and in uh, anemones, and all these kind of other things, and, you know, make this huge, beautiful map of, you know, where we might be able to find EGR and EGR analogs. And that, in and that gives things. us a wonderful lead-in to our next story, because we can move on from panther worms and EGR Uh, So what happens when we start editing the human genome in full-grown adults? And wonder of wonders, CRISPR is now finally ready to begin live human trials. You know, permitted ones, not ones where (laughs) Chinese scientists are genetically enhancing babies to create, you know, the future brotherhood of evil mutants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's let's move things in an ethical. Although, if, Listen, ethical, if I can't have superpowers, superpowers, I might as well be ethical. Okay, fine. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I agree. I agree with the first sentence. <laughs> We've had, uh, you know, genetic alteration for a while now, and um, New England Journal of Medicine, April eighteenth. So I'm talking about something that was released. Today. This was a massive effort for phase one to two 
trials, dual center trials, uh, eight infants with SCID, uh, severe combined immunodeficiency. We took a, a virus called a lentivirus. We put in there the replacement gene, Put that we packaged that in a virus. We took out their bone marrow. We purified the cells that we needed to, which are the ones that make white blood cells, um, the, the, the progenitors. We retroviral, you know, injected these genes in there with the lentivirus. And then we gave their own cells back to them after they underwent uh, bucelfan conditioning, some like really, really mild chemotherapeutics. And hey, after, you know, 16 months, um, they look good. Gene therapy yeah. used viruses to insert new genes into cells to treat diseases. This is the kind of lab research I did for a hot minute until I decided I detest doing lab research. I agree. What makes CRISPR unique is that CRISPR treatment largely avoids the use of viruses, which has caused some safety issues in the past because the virus, you're still using a virus shell and it always has a small potential to turn double agent on you. So CRISPR makes direct changes to the DNA, almost like the cut and paste function on your computer. So you can remove or modify specific genes that cause a problem. So why are we excited about this now, but we frown on it with what the Chinese scientists did? Well, he used CRISPR to edit genes in human embryos, which means the changes he made will be passed down for generations and generations. That's a permanent part of their ongoing DNA. And he did it before most scientists think it was safe to try. So there's no gene editing of heritable traits. There is a an unofficial ban. But for medical treatments, we're only making modifications in the DNA of individuals and not, here's a key part, in any of their gametes or sex chromosomes. So these are not genes so that would be passed on because a couple of the early studies are used, are being held at the University of Pennsylvania for cancer treatment. One patient had multiple myeloma, one had sarcoma, both had relapsed after undergoing all standard treatments. So now this first study is basically modifying their immune cells to once again recognize the cancer and attack it. So we've reached the moment when CRISPR is moving out of the lab and into the clinic, and it involves removing immune system cells from patients, modifying them in the lab to recognize the cancer that that particular patient has, and then infusing that modified cell back into the body. So right now, we don't know how well it's working because the study has only just started and has been approved to treat a total of 18 patients. So this is a very small study, and there's also a half dozen other studies around the U.S. They're trying to treat genetic blood disorders, such as sickle cell and beta thalassemia. That's the defect in thalassemia. Your own genes lack a crucial part of the construction process, and so you get oddly shaped red cells. So they simply inserted that correct instruction back in, and now with their IKEA or Lego booklet, they can build the right kind of red blood cells. (laughs) <laughs> it is so you're you're giving back instructions um and or you're correcting a mutation and all of these so far are being done in hematopoietic stem yeah yeah they so they come from our bone marrow these are the progenitor cells which we're by the way we're making them all the time they're new ones that are generating that either make white blood cells red blood cells platelets 
you can take a, a handful of them and modify them and then give them back. And the cool thing is they'll find their way back to the bone marrow and then they'll start to multiply and make the downstream cell of whatever you need. You know, this is a kind of a, a Hail Mary. So we're not doing this to people where we already have standardized treatment, which we know it works. We're giving people a chance who would maybe without this um, not have a chance to survive. And if the treatment works, then, you know, we completely reverse their odds. And that would be the neat totally thing awesome. about one or two of these studies is they are the first studies that are going to try and edit genes while they're inside the human body. Most CRISPR work till now has been done, as I said, by removing cells from the patient, genetically modifying them, and then infusing right. them back in. But some of these studies are actually just going to directly put CRISPR-edited genes injected straight into the body. And that's why the studies are also about safety and early issues, because Gene editing could go awry, causing unintended changes in DNA. So it really is a last resort because however much I love the idea, most of the time when you create a mutant, you're not getting superpowers. You're just getting leukemia. That's true. Yeah. Our most vulnerable cells are the ones that divide the most. And those are our skin cells, our gut cells, the ones that lie in our gut, the ones in our liver, and the ones that help us make blood. So all of those divide very quickly. So if you do anything mutagenic, those are the ones that get affected the most. And yeah, leukemia is a, a common one to worry about when you're doing any now, kind of Now, politically, there's some concerns about these studies as well, not for the reasons you think. Uh, it turns out we're actually largely beyond protesting stem cells and where they come from, but these this new wave of CRISPR studies are the first to get approved without going through an extra layer of scrutiny by the National Institute of Health, and that's for a couple reasons. Both the National Institute of Health and the FDA changed their policy, saying only some studies require that you know extra nature of review, and that's partially due to the current administration and its willy-nilly uh, approach to oversight, and it's partially do yeah, yeah we don't and it's partially due it. to uh you know the same kind of orphan drug programs that allowed people who have no other recourse can get fast-tracked to try things in an effort to help but yeah yeah i i think that's fair to say figuring out how to approve these types of things, especially for people who are in desperate need of a cure, um, such as those that are facing the end of their lives uh, without a Hail Mary, um, you know, w we need to be careful how we advance these types of approvals because we have the opportunity here to be, you know, either overly conservative and then people can die or be overly reckless. And then we have the chance of doing harm uh, without thinking about what we're doing from a scientific standpoint and from a bioethical standpoint. Before we go to our, our big finish story, I do want to bring up just another fun one. It's not quite as much fun as the Viagra soda. <laughs> but, you know, let's, let's all take a brief intermission and grab some snack foods are you more of a salty or sweet snacker? All right, I'll just say a little bit of both. I'm not answering your stupid question because this is just 
I've always had a little bit of a sweet tooth. So here and again, I'll pick up fruit, candy, and everybody knows the best snacks are the snacks you find in foreign countries. Regardless of where your country of origin is, foreign countries always have way better candy. (laughs) So yeah, you're, you're talking about, you know, we like to discover different things so packaging can often have a lot to do with what kind of candy you buy and also language barriers oh man mexico has strawberry chili lollipops if only i knew oh yeah yeah oh they have like fruit slash chili everything japan makes every flavor of kit kat you could possibly imagine and several you can't if you happen to be traveling through Russia, you might want to pick up the ever popular and still sold today candy bar called Hematogen. <laughs> Is that the actual like pronunciation of that word in Cyrillic? Uh, it's it's more of a G sound, Gematogen, but that uh, the one that looks the one that looks like an upside down like L hematogen. is like a G H. Yeah, hematogen. so Him. that's a gamma. Like it's do from your the best old Boris Greek and gamma. Natasha impersonation. Yeah, so and give moose and squirrel gematogen. <laughs> uh, it's the same uh, thing in both the the G E and the G E. Uh, so right. it's hematogen. Moose and squirrel get treat. A gematogen kind of thing. Uh, and here's the great thing about this candy bar. <laughs> oh God. You haven't even said it yet. No, no, okay. You said, I mean, I, you, Praz, you and I both know, like, if you hear hematogen. Okay, smarty yeah, pants. Like, you know what what is, is it? No, this is like hemo, like heme, like iron. That's a red blood so cell. So technically, that's this candy blood. bar is classified as a medicinal like, product. It contains sugar, vanilla, oh, condensed on, milk, which dude. is like, you know, a fudgy texture. And Rocky. and also, um, <laughs> I, I believe they call it... Uh, Black food albumin. Yeah, iron and rich candy. Black food albumin. Can't say I've heard of that. Allow me to translate is processed cow's blood. So yes, Killjoy, you're right. It's a candy bar made with blood. <laughs> but I, yeah. I can't be I can't be judgy about this, right? So like if you go to the African right. Serengeti and um you know you have cultures out there and everything and then of course you have like blood sausage in england and everything like that so like blood is like a common additive to foods around the world just at local pharmacies or candy stores and would actually help to treat a number of people in russia who were anemic for whatever reason whatever reason you care to choose Um, but rather than giving out iron pills, sure. which yeah. have a number of unpleasant side effects, and that's what we do for people who are severely anemic here, in Russia, they're told to just go buy this candy bar, which Metallic. has been described as like a very <laughs> mm, metallic-y Tootsie Roll. There's oh. five bars for ten ninety nine oh. on Amazon. And if you think there's not a box on its way <laughs> on to Amazon. me now... <laughs> then you clearly have not been listening to this show for the last five years. Uh, I mean, this is essentially like when we get iron and stuff like organic iron, I mean, it comes from somewhere. It may come from, this isn't as gross as I thought. This isn't just like a block of straight blood. Yeah. This is like, okay. When you, if you eat steak, there's going to be some cow's blood in it anyway. Most of us are probably already eating it. Sure. It's just like, well, you also have flavoring that, options that where it can taste like sweetened beef liver, <laughs> and they add things like apricots and prunes. So, you know, common candy things, but uh, I kind of like the idea of 
what if we could bring that into our hospital setting today where you have a a kid who's anemic and doesn't want a blood transfusion because they're scared of needles or an elderly person who can't remember to take their pills but loves to snack every day while watching, I don't know, whatever talk shows on in the middle of the afternoon. And then you just hand them a candy bar and, you know, all we need now is an insulin candy bar and we have fixed the two biggest problems in American nutrition right there. (laughs) You know, brings up an interesting point. I wonder if Jehovah's Witnesses will accept this. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's I not no a transfusion. It's, it's I. I think it's never come up. It's never. Yeah, <laughs> Pros, you've never done like a pre-surgical history <laughs> where you're like, oh, you know, any. Are you willing to accept candy bars? Do you eat blood. <laughs> Like, this isn't one of the routine questions you ask when you're screening a patient to make sure if you need to save their lives so, in the middle of a surgery. Folks, leave comments on our <laughs> Facebook, on our Twitter. If you've tried the candy, blood candy. So much tastier than blood diamonds. Oh. So let's move on to what I like to call our big finish manufactured yeah. journal club study. And we started off with saying all the problems with this resuscitating pig brains um, and the problems it could lead to with organ donation because most of our donated organs come from people who have been declared brain dead. Well, now we can approach that problem from the other side as this company has, or scientists have managed to create the world's first 3D printed heart using the patient's own cells. A few things I do have to clarify with this. So it's researchers at Tel Aviv University have in fact successfully printed the world's first 3D heart and biological materials to completely match the immunologic, cellular, biochemical, and anatomic properties, Mm -hmm. meaning it will not be rejected should it be transplanted. It's made from human cells and patient-specific biological materials into the 3D ink. That's so cool. So wait, was this the one so where they, they used a little bit like with the, ghost the parts, But no, the scaffolding well? is made from a special, is usually made from stem cells, so it's less likely to be rejected, but it's still a mass-produced mm-hmm. form. This took biops, this okay. research team took biopsies of fatty tissue in the omentum, you know, mis- <laughs> that mysterious extra organ that showed up a few months ago that <laughs> oh no we knew about it yeah <laughs> organ discovered in the human body like yeah. we were just searching for loose change under the sofa cushions so they took fatty tissue from <laughs> omentum in both humans and pigs and then they separated the human tissues and reverse programmed them to become stem cells or master cells that could make anything they then combines that with an extracellular matrix. So that's what the ghost heart was, collagen and glycoproteins, along with these stem cells, and used it to 3D print a heart. Now, here's the catch. Right now, the 3D heart is small, the size of a rabbit's heart, um, because they were able to do it with just, you know, a few million cells. Creating a human heart would take billions and billions of cells and these current hearts even though they are functioning they're about the size of cherries and they don't necessarily behave like human hearts they do have four chambers but they're not coordinated like ours and they have to be trained to be like human hearts and form a pumping ability so the cells can contract but they don't work together so right now we can create little cherry bomb size atrial fibrillation hearts 
So I guess it's kind of similar to like the brain thing in a way. Like you have cells that are alive that work, but they don't really work on a global scale. So they are still going to have to be trained. The The point being, we have now made it to the point where we can start 3D printing functional organs. How functional is still going to require a lot of work because the team has been able to train the hearts to efficiently pump. And unfortunately, I didn't read far enough into the paper to see how they managed to train them. But they can make vascularized and perfusible cardiac tissues that can hold blood that wouldn't be rejected by the patient. So now it's just a matter of scaling it up and teaching it to work. And then who knows? We could have Star Trek holodecks where you could just 3D print anything you know in the med bay that you needed to transplant into somebody. This was super, super cool because at the very least, you know, you have this tiny non-functional heart um, which if you try to make it beat, just like you said, Josh, it just kind of twitches. Um, so it has some conduction ability. Even though we have muscle, we have vasculature to some degree. We don't have the electrical system, which is one that you really need in order to get like coordinated pumping. Really not big enough. Um, but dude, boy, is this cool. You can imagine even if you had enough cells such that you could make a, a part of a heart, like a patch, actually say, oh, you know, there's a part of this person's heart that's not beating properly because, you know, they had a heart attack and, you know, it's the that part of the wall doesn't move anymore like it should. Well, maybe we can replace huh, it with nice. a patch of working cells that has blood flow and muscles and everything. I'm actually Oh, that just warms my heart. About this. So I... Um, and my current, actually, since I left training, we haven't, I haven't worked at a place that does heart transplants, but I did see it a few times in residency. <clears throat> um, it is actually pretty cool to see like a completely open chest cavity with no heart in it. that's just sort of circulating for a while. And you're sort of looking there like, huh, that is, something seems missing, you know? Um, so let's move on. And before we do it, just the tip, because you know, Dr. Praz did come back from a recent vacation. Uh, I feel like there's one more study I just want to shoehorn in here, mostly because it's fun and it references a stand-up comedy bit from over a decade ago. <laughs> so I just I feel like Dave Chappelle. So a yeah, Dave Chappelle point. had a number of More great than bits back comic. in the day, and one of them, and there is a cosmetic <laughs> medical procedure in Australia rapidly gaining popularity (laughs) and i will tell you it's a super popular procedure down under in every sense of the word i love that this started in australia that is the greatest name ever (laughs) (laughs) there are some morons walking around saying i don't want my ball bag to be wrinkly anymore So, so be, I'm going to inject uh, Botox into the So they're nice and youthful and smooth looking. You know, like a young scrotum okay, is yeah, not wow. ever, be... never. Because scrotums are smooth just like the entire lifespan of a scrotum. As smooth as eggs. So the procedure costs about a thousand Australian dollars and consists of, ready for it, 55 skin deep injections 
applied to the scrotum. 55 skin deep injections. <laughs> which could we could we give just like two pros? Could you talk to us about how painful pain doctor? Would you talk hey, to us about there's how a local anesthetic five injections to the scrot is going to be? Yes, injections to the balls. Here. Well, it's also important to note that you'll have I don't to repeat care how the much light just like any Botox every three to every three to four months if you want to keep that bowling ball feel. Yes. Um. Okay, all right, look, in all in all fairness here, it does sound like there are some legitimate medical reasons for doing this. Apparently the most common reason is that people have some people have tightly contracted scrotums that actually cause testicular compression and Yes. So these are for people who that, have that's, like that's, spermatic cord oh, blocks or severe uh, recurrent epididymitis, microsurgical denervation of their spermatic cord. So there are a few medical conditions which this can be used to relieve, but I should point out this is never the first line treatment for any of them. <laughs> Yeah, no, no. This this is a vanity project. <laughs> this is oh, but, come on now. Yeah, you gotta. <laughs> this is this was the whole the whole bit from Chappelle. Was, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna shave the top of my balls and just leave. A little bit on the bottom, so it's got a goatee just like mine. <laughs> I'm gonna inject Botox into them so they're smooth as eggs. And then I'm gonna go to the beach bottomless. <laughs> now. Oh. oh my god. Oh my god. I I know there's going to be complications too. As sure-handed as these plastics people huh. are and urologists and everything, someone's going to slip and go too deep. So I couldn't I get don't full know population data on how Botox many people are receiving this, but testis. the surgeon who's performing it at the Caliber Clinic does state that it is very popular within the LGBT community. With more that wraps up this journal club for manufactured. <laughs> Sandman, you were just in Mexico. Last time you told us some of the places you were going to visit. How'd it work out? Where would you send people to now having been there? So we spent four or five days in Mexico City. We also spent um, three days in the Yucatan Peninsula, which is where Cancun is. Although we did not stay in Cancun, we stayed in two other similar cities. One is called Tulum, and the other one is called Espuja. People go to Mexico wanting to go to the big resort cities and the tourist traps like Guadalajara, Cancun, Cabo, uh, Tijuana, etc. Uh, but people, <clears throat> ironically, often overlook Mexico City, even though it's their capital city and their largest city. If you take away all the touristy stuff, you actually get to see what day-to-day life in Mexico is actually like. And... Uh, the food is more authentic. First of all, the food was incredible. Um, both the street food and some of the nicer restaurants. We ate it. It was probably some of the best food I've eaten. It's called, this was, the pyramid's called Teotihuacan. And they're just outside of uh, Mexico City. So that was really cool. Um, definitely worth checking out. Let's see. We missed the zoo. We missed the luchadores, as Josh had pointed out to me earlier. 
We had a lot of really cool food. We had um, guacamole with, um, I want to say deep fried crickets on it. Yes! I love crickets. Yes. Chapulines. I... Ooh. Really? Chapulines right. is grasshoppers. Right, and is. they taste delicious. And I <laughs> wish I could get more of them here. In fact, Proz, did you know that Mexico has the world's highest number of edible insects? You, know, you can have spicy grasshoppers. You can have a creamy <laughs> wing dance salsa. Um, I, there's, I would there, of course, good. the mezcal you know, worms. Somewhat uh, questionable. I mean, the water was perfect. The sky was clear. It literally looked like it was right out of a Corona ad. It was very nice. Uh, so, I mean, we both want to go back and see more of Mexico. There's a lot of places that we missed. But certainly from what we saw in Mexico City and the uh, Yucatan Peninsula, we were very impressed and would strongly recommend to anyone. But that's it for <laughs> this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, yeah. <laughs> and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Happy all my travels, co-hosts. Everyone. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes along with any sources we used looking up the episode this week. And if you want to send me a thing of soda from Zambia, our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, (laughs) as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.